Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Tuesday morning here at Home Alone. And let me see if I can take a whack at the uh, at the uh, history uh, thing this week. Um, I want to take a piece, a very small piece, of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Uh, the idea behind this came from Rabbi Kasurla in Florida. I'll jump right into it. Um, he mentioned me something about Stam Yenom, and maybe I'll, uh, if, in case I go to uh, Boca and so forth. And the thing is. That made me, it put me in a little mind of thinking. He's talking about the controversy about the Jews in Italy used to drink Stamienum for a long time. And other places as well, actually. Um, there's a famous sugya in Jewish history. Like I say, maybe when I go, if if and when I go down there, maybe we'll talk about that. But I just want to do a piece. And that has to do with Rabbi Yosef Caro. We're talking about the 1500s. And... I'm not doing a whole thing of music. I probably did it once, but I'm going to do one Nakuda, which is an interesting one, and it also came to my mind in light of uh, the fact that I just did this uh, lecture series, which I think now is on the YouTube, about the history of Bayesians. Again, aspects of that. And uh, one of them goes like this. Uh, the Jews in... There were, I'm thinking how to, how to do this. Yosef Karo was born before 1492. He was a little kid when they left Spain. His family went to Portugal and eventually to, to the Turkey, to the Ottoman Empire. He was for a while in Salonika, and then he was in other places, and then he ended up in Svath. That's how it goes. So he wasn't born in Svath, but he came there. Now, this is Svath in the 1500s, its most famous era. That's the time of Ramiro Cordoviro and the Lachadodi and later the Arizal and all this stuff, you know, the Gurieri. All that business. In addition to all that Kabbalistic stuff, which if you're a Makobo means that Sfas is the most important place ever in history. I mean it. Um, in addition to that, side by side with that, there was a lot of Nigla stuff going on because some heavy hitters either were born or moved there, including most famously Rebiosa Karo and these other Sephardim. And they made Sfat, putting aside the Kabbalah for a second, a major center of learning and halacha. Um, so Ryozikar is not the only one, but I would say he emerged as the most important. But before him was Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, Mari Beirav, and many others, Alshech, and so forth. I'm talking about learning-wise. Again, I'm putting the Kabbalah stuff on the side for the moment. Now, the interesting thing is, they're developed in Sfas, among these guys, especially Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, this notion that, um... We must be in Mashiach time. The only way to understand the expulsion of 1492 and all this other stuff, which is so unusual, is it must be Ikvus in the Mashiach. And therefore, we should restore the Sanhedrin. I'm not going to... I think you all know that story, and I did the Maral Bach once. And I, anyway, uh, the, the Sanhedrin. And he, uh, without going through all the details, he reestablished the Sanhedrin. Uh, Ladato, Lashitaso. 
We got all the rabbis in, in, in Israel to agree he should be it, and then he can give smicha to the others. Um, and one of the people he gave smicha to, of course, I'm talking about the original smicha, with the famous controversy of whether or not it can be revived um, in the Rambam. And he gave smicha to Rabbi Yosef Kara. I just want to make that clear. So Rabbi Yosef Kara held, and Marie Rav held, that they are musmachim. Think, I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, in other words, they held, they have the right, you know, they can do all these din and the and kenosis and all the other stuff. They can do it. Now, for some reason, they said they're not going to toy with the calendar because that was one of the big arguments against it. You'll mess up the whole cholesterol if you go back to Ada, uh, you're going into Adam and all that. I don't remember all the argumentation back and forth. It was long. But other than that, it is a smicha. So one of the things they wanted, and it's not a bad idea at all, is the following. Suppose everybody in Cholesterol would have recognized that they're the Supreme Court. Sort of in, this, in the style of the United States Supreme Court. So that Kimitzion takes a Sarah Dvar Hashem Yushalayim or Kimitzvas takes a Sarah Dvar Hashem Yushalayim. And let's say they would issue rulings and things like that and they would be obeyed by the communities in the diaspora. In their opinion, that would put Cholesterol on the same page. It'd be a tremendous Achtis type thing. It would restore some sense of national identity to the scattered pieces of the diaspora. And that itself would be preliminary mamish mamish to the geula. That was their frame of mind. Um, and I would even say, if you know the history well, that Marie Beirab, Yaakov Beirab was a very hush of a guy, but Yosekar achieved a greater um, reputation. Okay? You should read the way the Ramah writes of Yosef Karo. Dane equals it all. He's like Machniatim crazy. You understand? Crazy. And uh, I know the Ramah ended up writing part of the Shulchan Aruch. I get it, but I'm just saying it's not like they, you know, they both were considered equals. The Yosef Karo was in a league by himself, and the Ramah was lesser. That's how people looked at it at that time. I'm not talking about the way we do it today. Today we say it's equal, and as everybody knows, the Ashkenazim, Yotzim, Biyad, Ramah, <laughs> as this writer put it, and so on and so forth. That's true. But I'm talking about that time. Okay? And remember, you probably don't even know, Yosikar lived a long, very productive life. I think he was uh, 80s or something like that when he died. Um, I think he died in 1575 and he was born more than about 12 years or so before that. So he's in his late 80s. Um, just consider that. And by contrast, uh, the Ramah probably lived half of that. So it's just interesting. And when Marie Beirav died, which was in 1547, Yosef Kaur took over the, the, the Beisden. So either way, you have a heavy hitter Beisden on there at that time. And especially, there were like two Beisdens and they competed with each other, but once in a while they would combine. I'm talking about the Mabit. And as you probably know, they always used to fight over Shemitah. It's one of the interesting things every time, every seven years, this pops up. You know, with the Shemitah nowadays, Yesh Kenyan you can sell to an Arab, you can't sell to an Arab. Those are fights between the Machaber on the one hand and Mabit on the other. But I'm talking about within Tzfas. So, if you could get both parties to agree on something, and if it's true that he has Smicha, then the basin of Svas should like be machria 
um, wait, in a Supreme Court fashion and over, overtake, overwhelm, or supplant the other communities and basins elsewhere. The interesting thing is it never happened that way. There are repeated cases, and there's like a famous footnote in, in an article where the guy listed all those cases um, where the uh, Basin and Tzfat tried to issue and intervene and didn't really take off. Because Lamaisa, Lamaisa, you can have smicha, smicha, and you can hold whatever you want. The circumstances of the 16th century and even today are such as gatenish. You know what I'm saying? Now, maybe it should, and maybe you could say, like I mentioned the other day, but it didn't happen. And whatever Kasura told me made me think about that. And I would mention um, three instances without going into details, but rather to demonstrate the point that it wasn't possible for any basin from far away, even the greatest of them. And let's just stipulate that he had the greatest basin. But that don't mean anything, right? It's just, you know, the greatest basin. It doesn't mean that it cancels out what we do in our local community, in Germany, in Poland, in Italy, in Amsterdam, somewhere else. Just because the rabbis in Israel say something doesn't automatically mean that everybody rolls over and plays dead, right? Now, one is talking the case of Stamiena, where they were told by some Phoenician rabbis in Crete, in Candia, in Crete, Crete is an island off of Greece, which for a long time was part of Venice Empire. Because Venice had an empire. And there's such a thing called Venetian Jewry. Its own schnitt. Uh, the part was from that. And they complained to Riosi Caro in that basin that the Jews in Italy are, are uh, you know, drinking uh, Stamienum. And the basin in Sfas issues a big, oh, you can't do that. It's all wrong. They didn't name anybody by name, but they said to whoever says, you know, different is doing a big sin and so forth. It didn't do jack. It didn't mean anything. You see what I'm saying? It's not like all the people in Italy say, oh, and I want to be clear, even the big rabbis, those who were mako and held, you can drink regular wine, like from a wine store. They didn't change. This because somebody near Israel did it. So it's funny. If you would ask him, what do you think Rabbi Yosef Karo? Oh, He's the Godel Adora without question. Especially, well, at the time he did it was in the 1550s. I think maybe the Beis Yosef was out, but the, uh, I don't remember the exact years, but I don't think the Shulchan Ark was, but the Beis Yosef itself was enough to blow people away. Doesn't matter. Uh, and the main idea is, is because, and this is very important, any Beisden that deviates from its very, na- this is the point I want to make today, any basin that deviates from its very narrow, um, you know, job description is almost like we're doomed to failure. What do I mean by that? It won't have creds. The, the job of a basin is to adjudicate a case between two sides. You will come and tell me a story. Listen, I'm a rabbi. It happens all the time. Somebody tell me something bad about somebody or whatever. You know right away they're only telling you part of the story. You know they're partially lying. That is what happens. <laughs> you get it? And I learned and got burned, like every rabbi did somewhere along the line, until you learn by trial and error that you can't take what somebody says and believe it when it's no gay to somebody else. So if someone said, this guy cheated me or did this wrong to me, and I want you to do this or say this or write a letter to that, I ain't doing nothing. 
Because you're not telling me the whole story. Now, I'll even tell somebody nowadays that I'm smarter. I say, you're not telling me the whole story. He'll say, well, okay. Uh, the point of a basin is there has to be some forum in which both sides are present at the same time. And you hear both times and they can sort of contradict each other, cross-examine each other. Now, there's no guarantee you'll find the truth truth, but it's a much better guarantee than listening to one side. You understand? So just in general, when somebody says, I'm issuing a ruling, and they haven't heard all the parties, I don't care who you are. You could be the gutto, gutto, gutto. The people on the other side say, wait a minute, what's he saying? He never heard what we, he don't know what's going on. He never talked to us. You understand? He never talked to us. And in the 1500s, if you're living in Eretz Yisrael and somebody's writing you from from foreign place, unless you can arrange it that there's some kind of viasetus on both parties in a basin over there and both are forwarded here, which almost never happens. I'm talking about in these uh, political type cases. Uh, And even then, it's schwach because you do have written testimony from both sides, but they can't, you know, cross-examine each other. Uh, whatever ruling they're going to issue is going to be considered flawed. I, he's a great god. Oh, yeah, but unfortunately, he heard one side. He didn't hear my side. He doesn't. He doesn't get it, right? And to be perfectly honest, time and place matter. What would be considered shocking in one place is not shocking in another. Okay, I remember somebody once showed me in the same year that you have a tshuva from the Nitziv, about a guy who was smoking, you have a tshuva from W.C. Hoffman about a guy who was smoking. And I think the question was, whether well, like, on Shabbos, and what question was, what could duchen? And the Nitziv said no, and Hoffman said yes. And what's the shot? Because at that time, when it was written in the Nitziv in Russia, it was unthinkable that a guy in a small community would go smoking. Well, Shabbos, that's really flaunting it, you see? That makes it like a tourist, Shane Kamo. Mashingen in Germany, a lot of religious Jews, Orthodox Jews, smoked, you know, right or wrong, you know, opened their stores. It didn't mean that the guy doesn't believe in the Torah. You know, people are like that. <laughs> like the famous thing from Metlinger, you know, being seen. You, you, you see people, they go to Shul, they dive with a talus over the head on Shabbos morning, and when services are over, they go and open the store. So how do you explain it? You can't simply say that because otherwise, why do you go in the morning? After all, you don't have to go to Shul at all. Plenty of people by that time simply gave up all religious activity whatsoever. I grew up with people like that. You know, I grew up with people uh, 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 in that sort of way. So, um, that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's a very important thing to keep in mind. Now, um, consequently, when they said, oh, uh, what the Italian Jews are doing wrong and uh, they should be condemned, all the rest of it, I'm sure the Italian Jews like this. They don't live over here. They don't know what it's like, and they didn't ask our opinion. So to issue a psak or a order without consulting me is flawed. I don't care who you are. You see, a second case has to do with the famous thing of Azari de Rossi when he published, which I think I did. I, I that's a I have a a, a YouTube on that. We had seven seven famous historians. I don't know if it's up on the podcast or not. But I saw it definitely on the YouTube. And Zayde Rossi wrote this controversial book in the 1500s. And I think they even forwarded a copy. So his enemy said, like, oh, you write something that's trafe. Whether, and therefore you're trafe. You know what I said? 
Therefore, you are treif. You're an apicorus. Now, is he an apicorus? Let's say you think that he wrote something about Chazal that was wrong and very bad. Does that ipso facto make you an apicorus? I want you to think clearly what I'm saying. Does that make you an apicorus? You can't count him for a million and so on and so forth? Or do you say you're mistaken in your hashkafa? You may mean well, but you made a mistake in your writing. Even a bad mistake. And apicorus means, I know it's wrong, I'm doing it anyway, and the hell with it. I don't care. Literally, to the hell with it. Is that who he was? Now, his enemies, like happens in the controversy in our time, immediately say, so oh, he's trafed, he's an apicorus, he's a min, shoot him, this, and that, and the other. And they send a copy, or they wrote a praise of it, to Tzvast, Rabbi Yosef Karan is based in, and they immediately said, oh, he's a min and apicorus, and this, and that, and the other. Uh, it's a famous story that Biosakar was actually dying, and he told one of his uh, Dayanim, Galico, to write up a cherem, put the guy in cherem, and all the rest of it. And they sent it, but it didn't go anywhere. Meaning, in Italy, they didn't say, oh, Zari Rossi is trafe, we're not going to count him as a Jewish, and all the rest of it. Why? Again, they heard one side. The rabbis in Italy knew Azari de Rossi, or Azari Minadomim, and they said like this. Maybe his Ashkafa stuff is a little mistaken here and there. He wrote a big fat book or two. And definitely some of it is what we call Lav Davka and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean he's a, a Cherem type guy. You see? So again, the problem was you heard one thing and you're far away and you don't understand what's going on in Italy. And, you know, it's true because in Sfas, to, to read history in general is considered a waste of time. Uh, Mariosa Kar says if you read history, on Shabbos, uh, you know, it, it's it, it, unless it's an art scroll history, it's a it's an avera, and um, in Italy they didn't think like that at all. You understand? Know they read all kind of books on Shabbos. I would not say trafe books, but you know, Italian rabbis and Jews sometimes they read books in Latin, Italian about I don't know the Romans, the Greeks, whatever. You know, as people do in America, uh, right or wrong, right? as people do in America. Then, so it's a second case in where they heard one side and they didn't know what's going on exactly in the other place because how would they? And they issued this broad proclamation and after all, they have smicha. So they expected that their words should, you know, be machria everything and it wasn't. I repeat, all those people didn't listen to him about putting Zari the Rossi and Cherem because they certainly did not in Italy. Um, those people, by the way, the Machaber died on the day of the Cherem. It was interesting. But um, they said like this, Rabbi Yosef Kari is unbelievable. He's the uh, Shulchan Aruch, he's the Beis Yosef. Of course, we hold him from a belt. But on this particular case, he doesn't have a right. Nebuch. And the third one that comes to mind, right, is um, the story of Gracia Mendes, who I imagine I did here, but again, I have it on the YouTube. It's very famous. Everybody knows this story. She was a famous Murano uh, leader, uh, the zillionaire, the CEO. She's probably one of the most successful business CEOs of the 16th century. I mean that, literally. And certainly CFO, because they ran a, a commercial empire out of Portugal, and they pretended to be going until they didn't. And she had a whole series of adventures until I'll, I'll dumb it down for you. She escaped the clutches of the Inquisition and arrived safely in Turkey with her money. Okay? And when she was there, in Turkey, 
uh, and she purchased a palace, and she was tight with the sultan, and this and that and the other. Came the famous story in Ancona, which I must mention here, where the Pope, uh, that time, now you started to have, in the second half of the 1500s, the bad popes were very anti-Semitic, and they, uh, what's the right word? They they, they broke their word. They uh, had promised in Italy earlier that Portuguese Jews, meaning what you and I would call conversos, Moranos, Jews who were Catholic, but wanted to leave Catholic and come out of the closet and re-embrace Judaism, who had escaped from Spain and Portugal to Italy, and northern and middle Italy, and went to the countries over there where the policy was, if you want to, you can come back and re-embrace Judaism. And be like, don't ask, don't tell. Or no questions will be asked. And the Italian states that allowed this did this for economic reasons, because they said, the Portuguese Jews are very good for trade, import-export, they'll build up the economy, it'll increase employment, etc., etc. And even the popes had agreed to that, because the popes not only, as I've said many times, were were the religious leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, which is huge, but they were also kings. They had their own kingdom in Middle Italy called the Papal States. And so, if you're the Pope and you're also the ruler of the Papal States, you got your economic issues there also. You need money. And the earlier Popes in the 1500s had said that if the Portuguese Jews want to come and settle in the Papal States, especially in the port cities, the main port city was on the Adriatic facing the Turkish Empire. You know, opposite Serbia and, and, and those countries today, Yugoslavia, as people of my generation called it. If you will settle there and, and start going into business and increase the import-export, then uh, we'll have a policy of don't ask, don't tell. Notice we won't say, hey, you used to be Christian and now you're Jewish. You know, to do that, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. And for a while, everything was good until a certain pope came on board and he just reversed it. And he said, anybody who used to be Catholic and now is Jewish, uh, we're going to burn them at the stake. And he did. This is called the Parsha of Ancona. Ancona is the, the town, the city where it happened. And this is the 1500s. And by this time, and Gracia Mendes, the famous lady, was already in Turkey. And she considered herself the patroness of the Moranos because she had been one herself. And she was enraged that the Pope uh, uh, lied and changed his mind. And she knew what a mamzer was. And being a tough dame, a tough dame, because you couldn't succeed as a CEO, a CFO of an empire without being tough. Uh, so she said, let's kick the Pope in the face. If the, the most of the trade comes from the Ottoman Empire, the Jews control a lot of the trade. Not all of it, but a lot. So what I mean by that is that most of the ships and goods that were uh, traded from the Turkish Empire into Italy came through the port of Ancona and by Jews. So if we boycott them and say no Jew should do business with them, send it to a different port, the Pope will lose a belt of money and he'll have to give in. We'll bust him. And this is a big question whether that works or not because he might say, many of the Jews say like this, don't do that. He'll get angry and kill all the Jews in Italy, which was quite possible. Plus, the 
there was another duke, the Duke of Urbino. He said, you come to my port and uh, I'll take care of you. And if you don't, he might kill the Jews. And so, the, the, so basically, it was a bad situation, in which case, if you listen to one Eitzah, you might cause the deaths of all the Jews in the Papal States. If you listen to the other Eitzah, you might cause the deaths of the Jews in, in Urbino. Right? And this became a major cause celebra in the Shalos and Shuvah's literature because different Jewish groups tie in differently based on their economic interests. Uh, so those who used to do a lot of business with Ancona said, why should we give it up? Uh, and Gracia Mendes was living in Istanbul and she was a big Baal Tzedakah, and therefore she patronized a lot of rabbis and she bankrolled a lot of yeshivas. She had her own private yeshiva, meaning she bankrolled her own private yeshiva, like you say, you might even call it Yeshiva Gracia Mendes, and that's the Mari Leif, Marim Ben Leif, Rabbi Yosef Ben Leif, who's one of the great, great poskim in the 1500s, one of these galaxy of Sephardi biggies, and a very famous posek, and he basically was on her payroll, you know what I'm saying? So naturally, he wrote a tshuva and pushed that everybody should boycott the Ancona. Others, who represented different commercial interests, tied it differently. And in the end, she was not successful in getting a joint boycott. It only works if all the Jews agree to participate. Then, indeed, you'd have, you know, um, you'd, you'd cut the Pope off at the pants, you see? Uh, but it wasn't working. So she asked Rabbi Yosef Karo in the basin and spot, who she also gave a lot of money to. One of the ways that Yeshiva and spot flourished in her time was they had one of these givers. You know what it's like? It's like you see now... These guys are giving tens of millions to Lakewood and those places, you know, China and the others, just coming up with crazy numbers. Well, she was like that in the 1500s when, while she lived. And so they wrote a whole famous tshuva and says, everybody has to join the boycott. And again, it's the Riesu Karo, it's the Mabit, it's the it's all the big names. It didn't mean anything because the other merchants are like this. How can they say that? They haven't heard our side. They're not here. They don't know what's going on in my business. It's not like a, a investigation was held or something like this. They're taking her word for the facts. We have different facts. And so, again, everybody I'm talking about held the basin and Tzfas in the highest regard. And they certainly held Rabbi Yosef Kara it's in the 1550s already, peak of his years, in the highest regard. And they knew he is what he is. But it didn't matter. Because people don't say, just because you're big Tom Chacham, I'm going to go and cut my own throat. Commercially. And so you see again and again and again, a Bayesian, in order to have power, or or maybe that's not even the right word, maybe have influence, charismatic influence, needs to conform to certain norms. And one of the basic norms, at least as far as I can tell, and I'm not giving all the case, I'm just giving a few. Uh, one of the basic norms is you have to have the due process, which says I heard all the parties, and they were in front of us, and they cross-examined each other, and they contradicted each other. And, you know, out of the arguments comes the truth, you hope. But absent that, not. So I think that's just an interesting, um, their hair, in the context of Bayesian, because it doesn't simply mean who's the bigger gutto. There's a lot more to it that goes into that than, than just that. Anyway, that's a point I wanted to, uh, to share. Today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by the Shulchan Zvayit and Ariel, I'm very grateful to them. And they're also sponsoring another one. Uh, and with that, I wish everybody a good week.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.